Good morning. One of the fundamental principles of warfare is to know your enemy, to know his strengths, and to know his weaknesses. In John chapter 8, Jesus introduces us to the enemy. He explains who the enemy is, and he explains the nature of the enemy. In John chapter 8, we find a Jesus that is unlike the culture's imagination. We find a Jesus that is unlike Hollywood's Jesus. We find a confrontational Jesus. It's not that he's rude or uncivil. No, he's gentle and meek and loving. And love requires honesty. Honesty. Love does not compromise the truth. Love does not hide the truth. You see, we live in a culture that is disinterested in the truth. And that's why when someone speaks the truth and they say, well, I'm offended by that. End of conversation. We, we, we can't talk about this matter any further. Even though you may not like the matter, but love requires honesty. And one of the many things you have to love about Jesus is that he speaks the truth and love. He speaks the truth in a loving manner, but he speaks it. And here, he's confrontational. He is direct about who these religious leaders are following, about who these religious leaders have identified themselves with. Jesus said the religious leaders, he said to these religious leaders in verse 44 of John chapter 8, these people who wanted to kill him, these people who hated God incarnate. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that we have been introduced to this person by the name of the devil. He's been alluded to before by Jesus here in this chapter, but this is the first time that he is referred to by name. I think it's important to pause as much as I want to get through chapter 8 because we've been on chapter 8 for a while. I think it's important to pause and spend some time on this creature named the devil. It is crucial, crucial that you know your enemy. The Bible uses various names for this creature. Number one, it uses the name Satan. This name comes from the Hebrew word Satan. Sometimes that word is used as a verb to be hostile towards someone, to be an enemy against someone. Sometimes Satan in the Hebrew is used as a noun, which means an adversary or an enemy. And sometimes it's used as a personal name, Ha-Satan in the Hebrew, the Satan, meaning the accuser, the adversary, the enemy. Number two, his name is the devil. The name devil comes from the Greek word diabolos, and diabolos is the Greek equivalent of Satan. Diabolos means adversary or slanderer, so that's that's what the devil means, adversary, enemy, slanderer. Then there's the name Lucifer. 
which we will see a little bit later this morning. Satan is referred to also as the tempter, like in Matthew 4, where he tempted Jesus over and over. And of course, he was unsuccessful in his temptations of Jesus. The devil is also referred to as the ruler of demons. Demon is another name for a fallen angel. He's referred to as the evil one, the father of lies, the ruler of this world, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the deceiver of the world, or the deceiver of the nations, as he's referred to in the book of Revelation. This is why Jesus, in verse 44, says there is no truth in him. There is no truth in the devil. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, this is the way that the devil murdered the first two human beings. Jesus says in in verse 44 that he was a murderer from the beginning. What he means by that is the first two human beings were murdered by the devil, which is to say he orchestrated their death. And the way he did it was through deception with the woman, right? He deceived Eve, and then Eve gave the fruit to the man. The man wasn't deceived. He did it knowingly. He took the fruit. He looked at this beautiful woman, and he thought of God, and he looked at the woman, and he thought of God, and he looked at the woman, and he thought of God. Give me the fruit, sweetie. Boom. Dead. Both of them dead immediately. And that's why they hide from God. And that's why they have to cover up. Because something has immediately changed in them. Spiritually dead, which was what led to their physical death. And the devil orchestrated that death of the first two human beings through deception. The woman, unknowingly, Eve, served as the agent of the devil. That's what we do when we're in sin. It's not very flattering. It's not very sweet, but it's honest. She served as the agent of the devil when she handed the fruit to her husband. And then he served as the agent of the devil when he said, yes, thank you very much. I'll eat that. They're both at fault. But what, what I want you to see here is this is the deceiver. The deceiver of the nations. And his deception when it came to the human being, to the realm of humanity, started first with the woman. Number 12 there on the screen, he is referred to as the serpent of old. He's also referred to as the dragon or the great dragon in the book of Revelation. And finally, number 14 on the screen, he's referred to as Beelzebul or Beelzebub. The Philistines had multiple gods. Their main god was Dagon. But one of their other gods was Baalzebub. And so this is probably where the name Baalzebub or Baalzebul comes from. Satan is an angelic being, an angelic being created, created by God with incredible beauty, wisdom, and power. So much so that even the archangel himself, the commander of all of God's elect angels, The general of the armies, if you like, not the commander-in-chief, God's the commander-in-chief, but the general of all of the elect angels, you you, you read about it in, in Revelation 12, where Michael leads the angels in warfare against the devil and the fallen angels. But not even Michael himself will accuse 
the devil. In Jude 9, we're told that Michael did not dare pronounce against the devil a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. This gives you some sense of the power and the impressiveness and the authority of the devil. In order to understand Satan's origin, we have to go back. Back, back, back to eternity past. To a time before sin entered the universe. To a time of total worship of God. When there was no conflict between God and His creatures. When there was no conflict between creatures, among creatures. This was the time when the universe was in peace. When the universe was at total peace. The scripture doesn't give us much detail about the devil's rebellion. God does not tickle our ears with intrigue or battles as to what happened in eternity past with this angelic warfare. Did Satan walk into the throne room of God and plant his flag and say, this is mine, I now claim this for myself? Did Satan issue some written document that says, I declare that I am now entitled to this throne. Did Satan, which, which angel did Satan approach first in his conspiracy, right? Because he, he led a third of the angels to join his rebellion. How did that conspiracy work? I mean, which angel did he go to and what was that angel's response? Did the angel join the conspiracy with with Satan, or did the angels say, get out of here, and then go report it to God? How long did God let the rebellion go on? Did he let it go on for a year? Ten years? A hundred years? A thousand years? We don't know the answer to any of these questions, because God gives us a very general, not a specific description of the devil's rebellion. It is a very general one. There are two passages that deal with it. Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28. Rebellion, as it always does, started with an evil thought. An evil thought. In his pride, Satan wanted to be like God, answerable to no one. He wanted to be the one who was entitled to exclusive glory. Pride was his sin. Paul refers to this in 1 Timothy 3 where he's talking about, where, where the Apostle Paul is talking about qualifications to be an elder. And he says this in 1 Timothy 3.6. He says an elder, there the word is overseer, same thing, is not to be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The devil's sin was conceit. Don't you know how awesome I am? Don't you know? If you don't, you have a problem. I'm so amazing. His sin was conceit. His sin was pride. His sin was arrogance. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah 14. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 14. For those of y'all who who go to the 930, this is going to be review. These passages are so essential to understand our enemy. We need to know who he is and what his nature is. Isaiah chapter 14. The context of this passage is that through Isaiah, God is condemning an arrogant king of Babylon, a human king. And as God condemns this king, he shifts to another creature, to a creature 
who transcends the king. It's as if God is saying, I know the pattern of your pride, king of Babylon. I've seen it before in the one whom you serve and follow. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 3, reads like this. And it will be in that day when Yahweh gives you, the you there is Israel, rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. This is a reference to the king of Babylon and the the oppression of the Babylonians. God would bring an end to this evil oppression that was instituted by this human king. Keep reading in verse 7. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth in shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you. And the cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. If they were in the Texas Hill Country, they'd say, Bring on the the tree cutters. Cut down those cedars. Cut down as many of them as you can. Cedars in Lebanon are different. They're beautiful, tall, majestic, very valuable trees. And what the Babylonians did is they came in and they cut down the forests because they needed them for their war machine, for their war equipment, for their war paraphernalia. And so they used those cedars and other wood in their their warfare in terms of conquering that area of the Levant, including Judah and Jerusalem. Keep reading in verse 9. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. Meaning, Sheol is is a reference to the realm of the dead. Meaning, you're going to die, king of Babylon. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. Here Israel and the other peoples who were oppressed by the Babylonians are mocking the king of Babylon. He's now dead and powerless, and they're mocking him. And something different happens in verse 12. Verse 12 is a change of context. Verse 12 is a shift. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Star of the morning in the Hebrew is one word. It's helel. And when Jerome came along in 400 A.D. and translated the Bible into Latin, what we call the Vulgate, he translated helel with the Latin word Lucifer. Lucifer. I think what we're getting here is a description of the devil's fall, similar to Jesus' language in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, where Jesus says that he, Jesus, watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Lucifer's fall was the result of his conceit and pride. Look at verse 13. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most 
high. As we'll see in a moment, God created Lucifer in perfection. That's the word that's going to be used, in perfection. But at some point, this incredible creature, beautiful, perfect, wise, impressive, attractive, became unrighteous and sinful. And he declared these five arrogant I wills. That is the province of God. God says the I wills. Not anyone else. Not this creature, Satan. Lucifer's arrogance produced rebellion, even violence in the abode of God. Ezekiel speaks of this in Ezekiel 28. Please turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. This chapter is similar to Isaiah chapter 14 in the sense that there's a human king that is being referred to. The context is a human king, not the king of Babylon this time, but the king of Tyre, a very wealthy city-state. God condemns this king, and during the condemnation of the king, the words shift. God changes his words to not be addressed to a king, but angelic, an angelic creature, an angel who is behind the king of Tyre, an angelic creature of incredible beauty with magnificent wisdom, power, and perfection. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12. It begins with son of man. Now notice that is not capitalized. This is not the title, the messianic title from Daniel 7, Son of Man, referring to the Messiah. This is lowercase. This is Son of Man. We've studied this before in the, in the Gospel of John. Back then, you would use the, the, someone, would be the, someone would be the son of something or someone else, meaning of the same order. So Judas Iscariot is called the son of perdition, the son of destruction. He is of the order of destruction. Jesus is called the Son of God. He is of the same order of God. He's not an offspring of God. He's of the same order of God. And here you see this phrase, Son of Man, lowercase. It's a way of saying humanity. He's a human. It's a way of emphasizing human. You, human, Ezekiel, call a lamentation. Take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Lamentation is the Hebrew word kinah. And kinah has as its as, as, as the kind of the core of its idea, a dirge, a funeral song. Because what's going to happen here is it's going to be a sad description of death, a mournful event involving death. Keep reading in verse 12. Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond. The beryl, the onyx, and the jasper. The lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. This is a very interesting description of jewels. Because every one of these jewels is in the attire of the high priest. It's on the breastplate of the high priest. You can read about that in Exodus 28. This suggests that this angel had a high priestly function, a high priestly role in heaven. The function of a priest is to do what? What does a priest do? 
priest mediates, right? He mediates between God and another. And so apparently this incredible angel mediated between God and the other angels. An incredibly privileged position. This angel is the highest of all the angels. Keep reading in verse 13. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Two words here make it crystal clear this cannot be a human. You see the two words? Cherub, that's an easy one, right? Because humans aren't angels. There's another word, created. The king of Tyre was born from his mama. Born, not created. But we're talking about an angel that's created, an angel who is not just a run-of-the-mill angel, a garden-variety angel. This is of the highest order of angels, the highest class of angels, the cherubim. This clearly is an angel because of the words that are used here. And the Hebrew word for covers has the idea of someone who guards. The cherubs guard the presence of God. They guard the holy presence of God. That's why God, when He instructed the Israelites to build the Ark of the Covenant, remember that box that was part of the worship, He instructed them to put, you you have at the top the the mercy seat over which the Shekinah glory resided, lived, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But His special presence, His Shekinah, was with the Israelites over the mercy seat. The, the Ark of the Covenant is a facsimile, a representation of His throne in heaven. And so over the mercy seat was the, was the Shekinah. And on both ends of the Shekinah are the cherubs. The cherubs. When you, when you go through a study of angelology, which we will do at some point, I don't know if it's going to be at the 9.30 or the 10.45, where, where, where it's going to be. But when you go through a study of angelology, you'll see that there are cherubs, which are the highest class of angels. There are seraphs, which mean burning ones. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is caught up in the vision, and he sees the seraphim hovering around the throne of God, the burning ones, aflame with devotion to God. And then there are angels. So you really only see two classes Cherubs and seraphs, and then the myriad upon myriad of angels. And so we have here this angel of the highest order, the cherubs, the cherubim, but he's no ordinary cherub because it says he is the anointed cherub. The word for anointed is the Hebrew word mimsha. Mimsha. It's very similar to the Hebrew word mashiach where we get our English word, Messiah. Mimsha, Mashiach, they're both translated anointed because they're both related to the verb masha, to anoint. What we're seeing here is that this was no ordinary cherub. This was a cherub above all the other cherubs. The anointed cherub. This was a cherub above all the angels. Arnold Fruchtenbaum puts it this way. According to verse 14, Ezekiel 28, verse 14, at some point in eternity past, God took this particular cherub and anointed or messiahed him so that he was now over those of his own cherubic order. With this event, there is a being who is the highest of all created beings, not only in wisdom and beauty, but also in power 
and authority. Keep reading in verse 14. And I placed you there, God says. I placed you, this cherub, there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. The term the mountain of God is used in Hebrew Bible to mean God's seat of authority, to mean the throne of Almighty God. What we're seeing is that this angel is unparalleled among angels. He is the best of the best, the most impressive of all the angelic realm. No one compares to him. No other angel is described as the anointed cherub. No other angel is described as having the seal of perfection. God created this unique angel with incredible beauty, wisdom, and power. And then God entrusted him, entrusted him with the extraordinary privilege of guarding God's holy, majestic throne in the third heaven in the abode of God. Please, please, please do not think of the devil as this goofy little creature, red with kind of horns and his pitchfork. That's not the devil. You underestimate, at your great peril, the devil. The devil is the most beautiful, powerful, wise creature that came, at least at that time, from the hand of God. This angel, Lucifer, Satan, the devil did his job wonderfully, nobly, perfectly. I mean, when I say his job, I mean honoring God. This angel honored God and guarded the throne of God. The anointed cherub did his job well, nobly. And I say that because verse 15, God says he was blameless. A very impressive word to come from the one who is holiness, absolute holiness, absolute perfection, God. God calls this angel blameless in verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Again, created. And then something horrible happens. Until unrighteousness was found in you. God did not make this angel as a mindless robot. He made this angel with free will. And this angel, by his own choice, sinned, meaning he rebelled against God. He went from perfect and beauty, from perfect perfection, from perfect attractiveness, from perfect impressiveness. He went from that to enemy number one, from God. That's why verse 12 calls this a lamentation. It's a dark, sad event in the history of the universe. Instead of serving God, Lucifer chose separation from God. That's what death is. He chose spiritual death on his own volition, on his own free will, because he's not a robot. God made him with free will. There's no physical death involved here because he's not a corporal being. Right? Angels don't have a physical body. They're spirit beings. And so this, the anointed cherub, chose spiritual death. Because of his sin, Lucifer's special noble relationship with his creator became dead, non-existent. Keep reading in verse 16. By the abundance of your trade, you were <clears throat> excuse me, internally filled with violence, and you sinned. 
Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. Here's what happened. Lucifer looked at himself, and he said, Wow, I'm amazing. Wow, I'm beautiful. I'm wise. I'm impressive. And he was right. He was right. That's an accurate statement. But where he sinned was he said, Therefore, therefore, I will make myself like God. What he should have done is said, looked at himself and said, Wow, impressive, wise, beautiful. God, you are so amazing that you made me this way. You are impressive, God. He should have praised God for what God had done in terms of his creation. But instead, he got the big head. And he looked at himself and praised himself. He worshipped the creature himself versus the creator. This was the spark of arrogance and pride. And make no mistake, your thoughts matter. Thoughts matter. Thoughts produce action. And for this great, impressive angel, the action that was produced is he rebelled against God. He promoted rebellion through the use of violence. Do you see this word here, violence, in chapter 16? Apparently, he tried to take God's throne by force with the other one-third of the angels. We know, that the, the, we know the figure one-third from Revelation 12, verse 4. Lucifer wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be preeminent, subject to no one, to be the only one entitled to praise and honor. So he tried to dethrone God and put himself on God's throne. Can you imagine violence in heaven? Warfare in the abode of God. In the palace, in the throne room of God Himself. A grotesque, repugnant scene. The anointed of God, the anointed cherub, attacks God. Who anointed Him? This is unimaginable. When you consider the holiness, the righteousness, the perfection, the peace. The peace of the presence of God, of the third heaven. Lucifer's rebellion challenged the very authority of God, and it raised the question that until that time had been unimaginable to the angelic realm. Does God really have the right to rule? I mean, God, you say you're sovereign. Is that really right, though? I mean, you say you're almighty, but a third of your angelic beings, and not just run-of-the-mill angels, the anointed cherub that guarded your throne, he attacked you. Are you really sovereign? I mean, it's a legitimate question to ask. And of course, God answered the question immediately. He answered the question immediately as to who has the right to rule because he immediately judged them and he cast them into the lake. Excuse me. He, he issued the judgment that they would be cast into the lake of fire. Remember Jesus' words? 
He said that there is the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's already been prepared. God showed immediately that he had, that he had the right to rule. But the concept, the idea that there would be revolution in heaven was something that was so surprising to the angelic realm. And in fact, one-third of the angelic realm believed that Lucifer had the right to rule over God. Satan's arrogance blinded him to the reality that there is no one like God. Pride and arrogance blinds. It blinded him to the reality that God alone is all-powerful, that God alone is worthy, and that God always, 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 always wins. Always. It's not a question of if. It's a question of when. Satan is no match for the living God. Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen. He's speaking to Israel. So that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed and there will be none after me. I had no predecessor and I will have no successor. In other words, verse 11, I, even I, am Yahweh and there is no Savior besides me. I am God. Even from eternity, I am He and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it? The Hebrew question is pregnant with a negative answer. No one. No one. God immediately displayed that he has the right to rule by issuing the judgment that they would be cast into the lake of fire. I take from Jesus' words in Matthew 25, verse 41, where he refers to the eternal fire that has already been prepared for the devil and his angels. I take that to mean that the fire was prepared then when the judgment was issued from the throne of God. But then God did something that was surprising, something unexpected. He delayed the judgment, and he created a new creature in a new realm, humanity on planet Earth. And that new creature in that new realm is there to resolve the question of who has the right to rule. One of the main purposes of our existence is to display God's right to rule in intimacy with him That's why Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, uses the term rule over and over and over. Go back to Genesis. Look at Genesis 1, verse 28. Turn there in your Bibles, please. This is the account of God's creation. And you, on the sixth day, are the pinnacle of God's creation. You will find not the slightest reference to that absurdity called evolution in this chapter. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule, there it is, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in His own image, In the image of God, He created him. Somebody say it for me. I can't hear you. Male and female, thank you. 
Male and female, He created them. Verse 28, God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Another term of rulership. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You are created to rule God's creation. That's why you see these stories in human history. Hollywood actually does a good job at portraying this. This this appetite for rulership that is 98% of the time sinful, just like the devils. You see, I'm going to be king of the world, ruler of the world. And you have all these movies. You have these political leaders, right? Caesar, Napoleon, Stalin, Hitler, ruler of the world. In a sense, there's some truth to that. We're designed to rule. Not to rule in wickedness and evil, like a Hitler or a Stalin. They follow the pattern of the devil. Where they want to rule independent of God. We're designed to rule as God's image bearers in intimacy with God. Holiness. Righteousness, peace, peace, justice. He's hardwired us for that in intimacy with Him. That's why we're the only one of all of God's creation that is described as being made in the image of God. The anointed cherub is not described as being made in the image of God. None of the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, none of them are described as being made in the image of God. You are. Because He hardwired you for intimacy with Him, to rule as His agent. And this is part of the resolution of the question of who has the right to rule. God created us as His image bearers to rule His creation, and God allows the spiritual war to rage on here, on this planet. This is where the question of the right to rule is is determined. Does God have the right to rule, or does Satan have the right to rule? And sometimes I say that Satan has the right to rule. Let me say that again. Sometimes I, your pastor, say that Satan has the right to rule. I'm embarrassed to admit that, and so do you. When we sin, that's our testimony. It's our false testimony, but it's our testimony. Because when we sin, we say, God, no, thank you. You don't have the right to rule. I do. And we're not thinking, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm elevating Satan's authority. But that's what's happening when we sin. When we go back to the mud like the pig that returns to the mud. We're elevating the authority of Satan. And in fact, we're following his pattern. Which is saying, God, you told me not to do that, but you don't understand, God. I'm in charge. You told me not to eat from the fruit. From the, from the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. That fruit, give me that fruit, sweetie. I'm going to eat that thing. When Adam did that, he said Satan had the right to rule. He was a liar. Adam, when he said it. It's false testimony. It's not true. But that's what his action testified to. And that's what our actions testify to. When we engage in sin, it's a grotesque, Reality of us being 
sinners still and giving in to the devil's domain. The first image bearer betrayed God through his sin, and he testified that Lucifer had the right to rule. He aligned himself, Adam, the first Adam, with the devil, just like one-third of the angels aligned themselves with the devil. By doing that, Adam handed the right to rule to Satan. You see, God gave Adam the right to rule as his designee, not independent of God. As his agent, as the, as the agent of God, as the representative of God, not God, not as God. But Adam said, no, 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 I'm going to rule independent of you, God. And so when that happened, immediately Adam relinquished and surrendered and tendered the right to rule to the devil, who really is the one that Adam was following. You see the devil's creation, the devil's design. It is to reverse God's created order. It is to reverse God's created order. So what does the devil do? Right, God's created order, Genesis 1 and 2. God, angels, humans, animals. Satan reverses the created order. He gets Eve to obey an animal. Then he gets Adam to obey his wife. The design there is Adam was the authority, not because Adam is superior, not because the woman is inferior. The man who thinks that his wife is inferior is a fool. But just because God designed it that way, maybe in his sense of humor, he designed it that way. And so everything gets reversed. Eve obeys an animal. Her husband obeys her. It's the reverse of God's created order. We see this magnified today, right? I mean, that's why you have all of this cultural disaster. Men don't know that men want to be women, and women want to be men, and we want to train our boys to be girls, and we would train our girls to be boys, and, and the man is with the man, and the woman's with the woman. Reversing God's created order. This is the devil's design because he hates you. Because he was a murderer from the beginning. He hates God's image bearers and he seeks your destruction. When Adam sinned, he handed over the right to rule to Satan, the right to rule the planet, and the right to rule humanity. Both. That's why every baby that's born is born under the authority of the devil. That cute little, sweet little baby that comes home from the hospital with a striped hat, hat, you know, little hat on. Under the authority of the devil. In the devil's domain. That's why we have to be born a second time. Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again. The Greek word for anothen, <clears throat> excuse me, anothen can mean born again or can mean born from above. Or can mean both. You must be born again, which is to say you must be born from above. In a different realm in a spiritual realm, because this realm is controlled by the one who Adam gave the authority to, gave the right to rule to. This realm is ruled by the devil. And so we're born into it. And until we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the receiving of eternal life, we remain under the devil's authority. And it is only through the freedom of Christ that we are liberated from that by our being born again. Adam sinned. And when he sinned, he tendered 
the right to rule to, to the devil. And so immediately God announces the fix. Immediately God announces the second Adam. Genesis 3.15, we read it last time. The seed of the woman. The second Adam, which is the last Adam. Jesus, the Messiah, who would be born the way the first Adam was created. Jesus would be born sinless the way the first Adam was created sinless. The last Adam, Jesus, would undo the first Adam's sin. He would reclaim humanity for God. He would reclaim the planet for God. And once and for all, the last Adam would show that God and God alone has the right to rule. Please don't think that there is a, a contest here. There's no contest. There's no contest between Jesus and the devil. Jesus is in that corner with the red trunks on, and the devil's in that corner with the blue trunks on. I'm, I'm not making any political metaphors, by the way. <clears throat> <laughs> Round one, and they go at it. And round two, 12 rounds, and they're both still standing, and so the judges say, Jesus, you won. That's not how it works. That's not the book of Revelation. There's no contest. There's zero, zero contest. When the king returns, it's over. Like that. When you read Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, these are words of absolute authority. Zero contest. Mm, Jesus kind of barely won. No, the victory is absolute. It is decisive. It is complete destruction of the enemy. When God's clock strikes midnight and the fullness of time has been reached, Jesus will say, Ya no mas, in the Spanish language. No more. No more. He will destroy the devil and then he will rule as the first Adam was intended to rule. If I could quote the heavenly chorus from Revelation 11, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. History as we know it will end with the destruction of the devil. First, Satan will be cast into the abyss for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 3. That's his destiny for the thousand year reign where a man will rule. Jesus. Fully man, fully God. Where the devil is during that time period is in the abyss. Then when he is released at the end of the thousand year reign and there's a little revolution and then Fire comes from heaven, and, he is, and, and the revolution is destroyed. The Gog and Magog revolution, Revel, uh, Revelation chapter 20. Then the devil will have another location. Another location for the eternal kingdom of the seed of the woman. The eternal kingdom of the second Adam, who is the last Adam, who is Jesus Christ, who is the Davidic king. Jesus, the, the, the devil will have a location for that eternal kingdom during that eternal kingdom. And that will be the lake of fire that was prepared for him and his angels back in eternity past. Revelation 20, 
Verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they, all of them, including those who align themselves with the devil, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Do you see the great elegance of God? God uses a human, a human, to judge the angel. God uses the anointed human to judge the anointed angel, formerly anointed angel. None of this was a surprise. Okay? When the anointed cherub attacked the God who anointed him, that was not a surprise to God. God's omniscient. He knows all the knowable. There's never been a time when God didn't know all the knowable. It didn't surprise him. God allowed it to happen. God created the devil, created Lucifer, knowing that Lucifer would rebel against him. And so the reason God did that is because God's plan is much bigger than Lucifer. It goes far beyond Lucifer and and the third of the angels who are demons who followed him. It goes far beyond his rebellion. Guess what? It goes far beyond your rebellion and my rebellion against him. Because God is a God who can take evil and use it for his glory. Even using the evil of the devil and the evil and the evil of human beings for his own praise and glory, that his name would be elevated, that he works his holiness through the midst of that. And so the great elegance of God is that he sends a man who will ultimately judge an angel. Because all authority has been given to Jesus. Matthew 28. All authority has been given to the last Adam. And so ultimately, it is the last Adam who will cause the anointed cherub to be cast into the lake of fire. First into the abyss for a thousand years, then into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever so that sin will be gone. The author of sin will be vanquished and eliminated and isolated in the place of eternal torments This is the great elegance of God. Can I say again? God wins. The end is predetermined. We've read the end of the book and we know who wins. God wins. The sovereign has predetermined victory and it is the height of stupidity and asininity. That's not a cuss word, by the way. It is the height of asininity for the child of God to align himself with the enemy of God. And that's what we do. Believers temporarily align themselves with the devil by walking in sin. And the unbeliever permanently aligns himself with the devil by refusing to trust in Christ. If you're a believer here, and I pray that you all are, don't do that. I'm not saying that we're going to be sinless. No, we're going to sin. But you catch it when it's a thought. You catch it when it's a thought, and you confess that sin to God. And then you run from it. Because otherwise you're aligning yourself with the loser. The one who is the enemy of God. The one whose destiny is the lake of fire. And if you're an unbeliever... Don't do that. 
If you're an unbeliever, if you're here today without Christ, without hope, without eternal life, we want you to know that God loves you. And you are aligned with the evil one, with Lucifer, the devil, Satan, the tempter, the dragon, the serpent of old. That is foolish. Don't do that. Don't do that. You will spend eternity with him, with the one who you have aligned yourself with, if you refuse to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. You say, I won't believe in a God like that. I refuse to believe in a God who will cast people into hell if they don't trust in his Christ. You have that prerogative. You do. For now. For now. But God will remove that prerogative from you. Because here's the deal. He is God and you are not. It's a simple proposition. He is God and you are not. And he sets the standard of redemption, which he has set only through the seed of the woman, who is the second Adam, the last Adam, who is none other than Jesus Christ, the one to whom he has given all judgment. And so the way of salvation is by trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather and study it. We ask that you implant it deep in our souls. We ask that you give us courage, knowing that we live in the devil's world, behind enemy lines, under constant attack in this spiritual war. Help us remember that we are not here to frolic on the playground, but that we are on a battleground engaged in the war of the ages. Give us courage. Give us strength. Help us in this matter. Draw us to you. We pray these things in the name of his majesty, the King of the kings and Lord of the lords, Jesus Christ himself.